you can always um, listen um, to a class you missed if you want to, if it helps you with studying for whatever reason. Um, so I think those are all the um, preliminaries. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Uh, it says there's an exam for the Yeah, in the, fi in the final exam period. Yeah, what is that? Um, that, that's basically a way of encouraging you to do the reading, um, which sometimes people need encouragement. Um, and there, again, um, I, I've been at this a long enough time, you know, um, to give exams where if people are making a good faith effort to do the reading, they'll do fine. Um, and good faith doesn't mean every word. Um, so it, the exam tends to be, sh the, the, the way I do exams tend to be uh, short answers, identify quotations, and essays. Uh, the essays are the easiest to bullshit your way through, um, and that's fine. Um, the identify the quotations are partly not, do you actually recognize this, but given your sense of the writers that we've read, can you make a case for who this is by? Um, and the short answers are more like, did you actually do the reading? Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, just to be brutally honest, I think I give exams that you could do absolutely no reading for and never have come to class and still get a 50. Um, and everything after that, um, all the reading you do after that will be improvement. Um, you guys know about the CLUS test? You should Google this. We don't have time. In another class, I would do it. Um, it's a test called the CLOS test. Uh, it's a multiple choice test, um, eight questions long. Every question is, um, every major term in every question is nonsense, um, sort of like Jabberwocky. Everyone knows Jabberwocky? Anyone know Jabberwocky? Who wants to recite it? Ah, the hands immediately go down. Come on, this is your chance. If you volunteer to recite this in the next quarter of a second, you get an A in the class. Too late. <laughs> all right, twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the bar groves and the moam wrath outgrave. Beware the jabberwock, my son. You see how we're speeding through this class? <laughs> the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub jub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxome foe he sought, then rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffing through the tall wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through his vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. Oh, fragious day, kaloo, kalay. He chortled in his joy. That's where we get our word chortle, by the way. It's, it was a nonsense word. And then the first stanza is repeated. Twas brillig and the slimy toast and gyre and gibble in the way. All mimsy were the bargos and oh, rat. So that's Lewis Carroll's most famous nonsense poem. Um, and the point is that even though every major term in it is nonsense, you get the narrative. Um, and what Carroll understands is that's what a whole lot of literature is. 
Um, fictional beings. We're reading about fictional beings. In the strictest sense, they're nonsensical beings because there's nothing in the world that we could identify as what they're referring to. Jane Eyre doesn't exist. Um, Rochester doesn't exist. And yet, they have names, and we can, tr we can follow their names the way we're following nonsense words. So the CLUS test is a test, which is all nonsense. It was developed by um, uh, people in an educational school to prove that good test takers could ace a test even when they had no idea what was on it. Um, what's really interesting about the CLUS test is, and you really should Google it, C-L-U-S-S -S test. Um, what's really interesting about the CLUS test is it just shows um, how you can work something out even if you don't know any of the terms in it. So I took the CLUS test. I'm proud to say that I was eight for eight in it. Um, eight questions, I got eight right answers. Um, most people get at least four where you would expect two on average. It's a multiple choice test with four answers for each one. Um, so I think the median is four right answers, and a lot of people are eight for eight. Um, so it's definitely worth doing. And that's what the final will be like, a little bit like the CLUS test, um, except literature. So like um, you already know, because it's a tragedy, that what happens to the end of King Lear? They all die. OK, good. So there you go. That's your 50% right there. Um, all right. Is that the answer you were looking for? Yeah. OK, good. Other questions, comments, concerns? Good. Now you can forever hold your peace. Um, all right, take a look on um, the what is really the third page of the syllabus. So I assume it's, uh, it's where the poetry starts. Um, and um, there are a bunch of things that um, are similar over many centuries that I want us to at least get a quick look at. Um, but before that, I want to look at this Yeats poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion. But before that, to tell you what the quick, yeah? Can I, I just need a paper. Um, are there any more syllabi going around? Okay. Okay, anyone else? Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else? So um, this is a, the first piece, which is untitled, um, because titles actually were fairly rare in the 16th and 17th century. They came in um, later on in the history of poetry. Um, the first line of the first, it's a song by Ben Jonson from A Mask, which means, again, that you don't need to know the context because it's a song. And if you do know the context, it will help and hurt. Um, it will help because you'll know the context, but it'll hurt because you'll know the context. Um, if you've ever had the experience, which again is another way of putting what I was saying at the beginning of the class, of really, really, really liking epigraphs to chapters, you know, little bits of poetry or of literature at the beginning of a chapter um, where you don't know where they're from. George Eliot does this, for example, in Middlemarch, but lots and lots of people did it. It became um, something people started doing at the end of the 18th century. If you like them, you also know that if you were to look up where they came from, they would turn out not to be as good in context as they are out of context. That's a really interesting experience of literature. 
the out, that the out of context is often better than the in context. As I say, that's one reason that we're not spending a lot of attention looking at historical context. Um, songs are great because they are out of context, because they are already declaring themselves a song, something out of context, not part of the narrative that they belong in, but something that the people in that narrative stop the narrative in order to sing or listen to. Uh, there's a great book by the 20th century um, American poet Kenneth Koch um, with the title Songs from the Plays. And it's his own poems, uh, but he's presenting them as out-of-context songs. So it's not even, I am Kenneth Koch, and here's what I have to say, I am deep, which is what most poets say. Um, it's rather, I am Kenneth Koch, and here's a song for you. And it's from a play, but you don't know what the play is. He gives you the titles sometimes. Um, stuff like Paris in the 19th century. These plays often um, usually don't exist, uh, but they do have titles. And in fact, this is great. It's got this, this book, Songs from the Plays, has as an epigraph the following around songs, everything becomes a play in quotation marks, dash, William Shakespeare, which is just such a great line, right? Around songs, everything becomes a play. Shakespeare, who of course never said it. Um, so what Koch is doing is he's saying you don't have to worry that if you were to look this kind of song-like line up, this epigraph up in Shakespeare, it would turn out to be disappointing. Well, I'm going to put the mousetrap in, and I think I'll put a song to make Claudius guilty. Ah, very well, my lord, that is brilliant, because around songs, everything becomes a play. Dost thou play with me, boy? None of that. You don't have to worry about it. Um, in fact, and again, this is something we won't do, in King Lear, we'll mention it, but we won't do it. In King Lear, there's a place where um, Edgar sings a song, um, starts singing a song, and the song he sings basically has one line. Child, roll into the dark tower came only line of the song. And then he interrupts himself. And so, just so you know, there's no dark tower in King Lear. There's no character named Roland. Um, child means um, a knight in preparation. Um, and we have no idea what that means. Um, eventually, that do people know what that single line became? What endless work of 20th and 21st century fantasy that single line became the basis of? Anyone know? The hint is Stephen King. Yeah? Dark yeah, the Dark Tower. How many volumes in it? Seven. Yeah, and did he actually finish? I gave up uh, volume three. Yeah, no one goes through all that. Um, so Stephen King was so haunted by that line and then by some of its subsequent history that he wrote seven volumes of Stephen King. It took him like two weeks um, about <laughs> a gunslinger named Roland, who's actually a knight who goes through time, who meets someone who doesn't, who who likes the movie The Shining, based on a Stephen King novel, which Stephen <laughs> King didn't like. Um, all based on this one single line in Shakespeare: "Child Roland to the Dark Tower came," which is partly great because when you read it in Shakespeare, Shakespeare doesn't give you any context for it. It's a song from a play or a line from. A play. Um, so here's a song. 
So beauty on the waters stood. And what the song is about is the creation of the world in Genesis, rewritten into something really beautiful. So beauty on the waters stood when love had severed earth from flood. So love, that is God, um, created the firmament, made a barrier between the waters and the waters. So beauty on the water stood when love had severed earth from flood. So when he parted air from fire, he did with concord all inspire. So again, beginning a poem with the word so or with the word and is a sign that it's out of context because the so or the and aren't referring back to anything and so they're references without reference, that is, without the things they refer to. And that just tells you, you don't know what the context of this is. Um, but we do know that this is love creating the world, and love did it by severing earth from flood, that is, earth from water. Um, the four elements in the old theory of elements, you probably know are what are the four elements. Yeah, water, fire, earth, and air. Um, people know what the word quintessence means? It's the fifth essence, the fifth element, to refer to what we title to, the fifth element, quint essence, that is um, the spiritual element that might be the substrate or might be the ether in which all the other four are to be found, or might be the principle of their separation. So our word quintessence means the deepest thing because it's the fifth element behind the other four. In modern physics, it's something like quarks. Um, so beauty on the water stood when love had severed earth from flood, from water. So when he parted air from fire, he did with concord all inspire. That's love doing that. And then emotion, excuse me, that should be and then. And then emotion he them taught that elder than himself was thought. So he taught the heavenly bodies to move, and everyone thought that the motion of the heavens was older than love, which thought, namely, that the motion of heavenly bodies, that astronomy was older than the coming into being of love, which thought was yet the child of Earth. So that thought was the child of Earth, for love is elder than his birth. Love is older than the birth of Earth itself. So this is a poem about love. You know, paraphrased, it's love is the origin of all things. Love is older and more basic and the quintessence of all things. Um, but the idea of thought as a child of Earth is a beautiful idea. It's not, it's that the, it means that the thought was wrong that that thought only was what earthlings would believe because they don't know the actual truth. But what a wonderful phrase, which thought was yet the child of earth, for love is elder than his birth, elder than his own birth, elder than the birth of earth itself. Okay, let's look, and we'll uh, zip through this as you see we're doing. Uh, look at the, the Yeats poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion. The little bit of context you need for this is Yeats's dates, 1865 through 1939. So he is dying at the age of 74. Um, and he is dying. 
this is, there are like four or five Yeats poems that um, people will argue are his last poem. That is his last poem. Each of them, there, there's a good argument that it's a last poem. This is one of them. This may be the last poem he wrote. Um, so, and it's a poem about not being able to write anymore. Um, the circus animals, as you'll see, as he will make clear, are his own poems, his own, ide his own poetic ideas. He is now an old man thinking of himself as a ringmaster in a circus. That's what his life came to. And it was all show. He was putting his animals on show, um, and um, they all looked beautiful, but now the circus is over. Think of any great circus movie, and that's the kind of feeling or background that you should feel here. The circus is over. And he writes about being unable to write, which in a sense is what all writing might be about. I sought a theme. Don't write your papers on that, though. Um, I sought a theme and sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so, maybe at last being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart, which is going to turn out not to be such a good thing, as you'll find out later. I must be satisfied with my heart, although winter and summer, till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion, and woman, and the Lord knows what. So um, every year, winter and summer, like a traveling circus, he would show his circus animals until he hit old age, till old age began. Um, anyone know what the form of this poem is, just uh, by way of noticing? It's a form called Otava Rima. Um, Yeats's forms, um, because his rhymes are often off rhymes, um, they're, they're not very prominent, which is a good thing. But just so you know, because just being slightly aware of rhymes um, contributes to the experience of a poem. We're not going to be spending much time on that their sort of thing. But the rhyme scheme is A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. So there are three A rhymes and three B rhymes, and then a couplet to end it all. Usually it's a comic form. Byron's Don Juan, not Don Juan, that'll be on the final. Byron's Don Juan, he rhymes it with new one and true one, um, is the greatest work of Otava Rima in English, and it's hilarious. Um, it's really, really a wonderful poem. Um, so now he's thinking, what can I do? but enumerate old themes. So he's trying to write poems, but what can I do but enumerate old, the old themes? And now he goes through what's basically a catalog of some of his greatest poems all through his life, his old themes. First, that sea rider ocean led by the nose through three enchanted islands. So Yeats's first long poem is a poem called The Wanderings of Ocean. Um, and Ocean is an Irish hero. It's a long, long poem. I don't recommend reading it more than once in your life, um, but read it once. And, but here he summarizes it. What can I do but enumerate all themes? First, that sea rider ocean led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams. What's an allegory, anyone know? Or what's an allegorical dream? Yes? An extended metaphor. An extended metaphor, usually clunky. 
Um, that is, um, if, if you guys know who Edward Gorey is, um, he, has, um, he, he has things like um, prudence carrying the umbrella, of, or virtue carrying the umbrella of prudence over the abyss of unchastity um, on the tightrope of um, self-denial. And it's a picture of a woman holding an umbrella on a bicycle riding across a tightrope from over, over a canyon. And the whole point is you look at this, and it's an allegory because everything in this picture represents some virtue or vice. Um, and usually we don't like allegories, but the great allegories are really, really great. One of the most famous allegories is in a book called Pilgrim's Progress, whose main character, it's a kind of novel, its main character is named Christian. Who do you think he stands for? Christ. Or Christianity. Um, and Christian is trying to get to this place called the Heavenly City. Um, his neighbor, Mr. Worldly Wise, says it's not worth the trouble. Do you think Mr. Worldly Wise turns out to be right? No. Um, and in order to get out of the city, Christian has to not spend his money as he walks through the marketplace, which is called Vanity Fair. That's where <laughs> that phrase comes from. And at some point, he gets all depressed as he's walking by a swamp called the Slough of Despond. So some allegories are very easy to understand. Um, Yeats is not so much, but he says that ocean is led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, and here's what ocean experiences, vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose, because it was all a dream. Themes of the embittered heart. Yeats is seeking themes, and his theme in ocean was, were themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems that might adorn old songs. So there's that idea of old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starved for the bosom of his fairy bride. So what he's admitting now is that the allegory, the moral lesson, the thing that the wanderings of ocean were supposed to teach, all of that was just an excuse. He had this fantasy image of Ocean's fairy bride in fairyland, and that's what caused him to write. And not some political, historical, contextual, um, moral, allegorical idea. No, I was starved for the bosom of his fairy bride. And then he goes on, giving his own literary autobiography, and then a countertruth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. So it's about, this is a play Yeats wrote about the Countess Kathleen, an Irish countess. Um, it was thought blasphemous because she sells her soul to save the souls of the Irish people. And eventually, God gives her her soul back out of her generosity. Um, and the, the English and the Roman Catholics didn't like this. But he said, I wrote this political play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. She pity craze, that is Kathleen, had given her soul away, but masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought, my dear, must her own soul destroy, so did fanaticism and hate enslave it. So he's talking about the woman he was in love with. And he said, I wrote this play because I was afraid of how she had become a political fanatic. I thought, my dear, must her own soul destroy, so did fanaticism and hate enslave it. And this brought forth a dream. And soon enough, the dream itself had all my thought and love. So he had a reason for writing it, but 
No, it was the dream that mattered. And when the fool, another play and poem, when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cahulain fought the ungovernable sea. Heart mysteries there. And yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory. Again, it's the poem, the image itself. Players in painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of. So any reading of Yeats which says, well, this is an emblem of the Irish Free State, no. He says what he loved was the representation, not what it represented. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind. But out of what began? So where did all this poetry come from? A mound of refuse, or the sweepings of a street, old kettles, old bottles, and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Slut just means um, a slovenly person. Um, it's not modern American. That raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, he can no longer rise to the beauties of poetry. I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. So poetry is the other world that you can never stay in, never get to, or literature is, but that nevertheless enchants you, that starves you, that gives you something other, something elsewhere that you want. And the more you contextualize it, the less it's an elsewhere. So this is a poem about the elsewhere. Uh, this is a poem. This is a class. I wish it were a poem. This is a class about the elsewhere of literature. Okay, for tomorrow, bring these poems in again, because we'll do more of them, and read um, the first scene of King Lear, Act 1, Scene 1 of King Lear. Um, any edition, as long as there's a little trick about King Lear, as long as it's what's called the conflated edition. So if you get an edition that says, ah, this is the King Lear the way Shakespeare originally published it, you don't want it. Um, the edition in the bookstore is good. Um, Signet, Pelican, Penguin, um, those are all good. But fancy pants editions that divide the different versions of King Lear from each other, no. Okay, see you guys tomorrow. <laughs>